Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets SEL podcast, episode 17. This is Andrea Samadhi. This interview will be broadcast on YouTube as well as the regular podcast channel, so be sure to look for the YouTube link in the show notes if you'd like to view the video. Today we move into our cognitive track with Jenny Wu. She's the founder of award-winning Emotional Intelligence Games 52 Conversations and 52 Essential Relationships and Harvard Graduate School of Education Researcher of Social and Emotional Learning. With her Game 52 Essential Conversations, Jenny has created a tool for parents, counselors, and teachers to support children's social and emotional development that comes with her own podcast channel, 52 Conversations to Inspire Children for Life, where she has in-depth episodes on topics that match the lessons in her cards. I have both sets of cards here and have been using them with my family for the past few weeks, and we've been having a blast with them. The game is designed for ages five to adults, covering six categories that align to CASEL's competencies that we've been covering here on this channel. Self-awareness, relationship skills, self-management, social awareness, responsible decision-making, and she's added diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that's questions like, what is fairness? What is luck? They can be used in so many different ways as conversation prompts during dinner or daily errands or in place of playing a game of Go Fish. And these cards are used in over 40 countries, all 50 states, in schools and in the workplace. So you can see why I jumped at the chance to speak with Jenny Wu. Welcome, Jenny. Thanks so much for taking the time to be here today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Andrea. Oh, you're welcome. So let's go right into how you got to this place. Can you give us some background on how you went from the corporate world in management consulting to Harvard's Graduate School of Education and how this switch helped you to find your true calling and create such a timely product to help develop social emotional skills for children and life skills for adults? Sure. So I would say just overall, this theme of people development has always been the constant thread in terms of my journey from working in the corporate world to cognitive neuroscience and to education. And I really started off my career on a macro level of people development. So I worked in human capital consulting, worked with Fortune 500 companies in various industries. And my work, an example would be to say, assess an organization's culture and climate and looking at their business processes and how people really communicate it with each other um, to figure out what we can do to create the type of work environment where people felt motivated and engaged to do their best work. And interestingly, a lot of the times where I found was that building processes was actually the easier part. And really the hardest part was about dedicating time to shifting mindsets. Um, So for example, getting the staff to really collaborate and talk to each other in meaningful ways, and especially during difficult times of change. So it was really there the seed of a central conversation started to grow. Um, I began to witness what would happen when you really humanize an institution and how that would really increase people's motivation and performance. So then later I transitioned to focus deeper and people development actually now been at the micro level. So on an individual basis, Um, worked within a job in Silicon Valley at one of the largest technology companies at the time that was leading the way in HR 
and talent management. And similarly, just after conducting countless 360 assessments, training, and coaching adults, right, big kids, um, in various roles, that I began to see a good sense of the types of skill sets that really made someone succeed in work and in life. And these are sort of the emotional intelligence or in the corporate workplace, we called it soft skills. And so I got to tap into the minds of both the people who are really good at these skills, right, versus the people who lack them. And what's really fascinating was to see how these skills manifested, including the people who seemingly good on paper, right, they're rock stars, but lack these skills and how it sort of prevented them from getting to the next level. So interestingly, this whole like, um, humanizer type of position continued. So I ended up coaching a lot of talented individuals and inspiring new hires to become how to become authentic and compassionate leaders that can inspire others into action. And so then my world really didn't collide with social emotional learning and K-12 education until I had kids of my own. And Andrea, you, you know how it is, right? <laughs> so um, me as a parent of three children, two of which are twins, it just entirely flipped my world upside down. Mm -hmm. And it was really started out as for my own sanity as a parent that I needed to figure out this parenting and the schooling thing out ASAP. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that was when I transitioned from developing, I would say, big kids into little kids, little people. Um, worked as a director at the largest network of Montessori schools at the time, um, got to know the Montessorian pedagogy, and really through there I noticed there was a lack of opportunities, whether it's in schools or homes, that really gave our children the ample opportunity to practice and learn the type of critical life skills that I saw so many adults lacking in the workplace. So intuitively through this experience, I knew that there was a gap, but I needed to know the science and the research behind my experience. So I went into Harvard Graduate School of Education and in this interdisciplinary program in developmental cognitive neuroscience. And that was really when I had the opportunity to learn deeply about social emotional learning and its connection with brain development. And this is why I love your podcast, right? This building into this connection. And for me, I would say personally, I'm, I'm a super pragmatic person. So I went into my research at Harvard with a clear vision that I was not only there to learn for myself for the sake of learning and researching, but that I really wanted to figure out how I can smuggle out these golden nuggets of amazing wisdom, research, and conversations, and disseminate that out of the ivory tower to really increase accessibility for all. And this is meaningful to me coming from a first-generation college student. So I would say 52 essential conversations and relationships was my way of doing that. Um, it's the culmination of all my experience in the workplace, education, and research. And what I focus on is really how do we develop big and small people at the same time? Right? How do we go on this learning journey? So my goal was to honor the children and the adults and making anything that I designed to be practical, actionable, and doable today. 
and with this mission, it was, you know, I wanted to make it accessible. And that's why it's a card game. And it can use anytime, anywhere in the car, uh, in school, outside of school, after school programs, and things like that. Wow, Jenny, I, I love your path, because we've talked about this before, you've come from where I would like to go. You came from the corporate world with this and are going in, into education now. And I've started in education and I completely see where it transitions in the workplace, which is why I have every session to focus on both because yeah. we cannot just think about what, what's happening in the schools. We've got to think about what's going to happen. How can you take this into the workplace? Because it never ends. Never ends. What we're always learning and I'm learning every day still. Um, I know we've seen tremendous advances over the decades in learning science, but there's still so many myths out there. Can you help clear up some of the most common myths that we hear? And for those people that are interested, I'll, I've put a link in the show notes to Jenny's website. There's a quiz that goes into all of these myths, but can you give us a sample of some of the most common ones? Sure. So the type of myth I focus on are sort of neural myth. The myth that we believe in how people learn, remember, um, you know, things around that. And so it was a project I started while at Harvard to really assess work with schools to understand how much of these myths were really happening in schools in terms of teachers' belief systems and parents. And what I found collectively is that people believed in these myths because whether of an outdated research, a research that got overly hyped up, and misconstrued, or research findings that unfortunately never made it to uh, public consumption. Mm -hmm. So a couple of examples of the most common myth that I've seen teachers and parents sort of stumble on um, are, so one example is um, about dyslexia. How that dyslexia is seeing letters backwards or scrambled Right, um, and so really what's happening with advances in learning sciences and uh, people with learning differences is that in reality, people with dyslexia have specific difficulty with decoding written words. But the type of difficulty really um, were related to the mapping of sounds to letters than the actual visual appearance of the words. So it's not quite of a visual deficiency as we had originally believed. Another big one is the 30 million word gap. And, you know, when I talk in, um, in front of teachers or parents, right, I ask what's one of the most common advice that you get as a parent or you give as a teacher, right, to do at home. And the resounding answer is read to your child, right? And, and that's perfectly correct, right? But uh, just the nuances behind that, right? Um, it was really stemmed out of a landmark 1995 study um, that found that children from higher income families hear about 30 million more words during their first three years of um, their lifespan versus lower income families. And so this 30 million word gap chance sort of just stuck um, and it, it sort of justified as why it caused these significant differences in tests related to vocabulary, language development, and reading comprehension. Um, so well, th there's definitely truth to that, but it turns out that this number was very much exaggerated and the key was not as simple as simply dumping words 
right, through reading. Um, in fact, last year, um, a research came out of MIT, Harvard, have found that it's not merely the number of words being exposed, a child being exposed to or read to, but it's actually the interaction, sort of the back and forth conversation between an adult and a child that literally accounted for a large portion of the brain physiological differences in language skills. And so you can imagine some of these implications to the types of myth that I've mentioned is that how teachers, right, teach, how teachers manage classrooms, right? So instead of thinking about, I need to squeeze in as many books and read as many books and get those vocabularies dumped onto children and lecturing, right? It's really about elevating the relationship piece um, in terms of social emotional learning. Emotional comes back in. And exactly. it, it's so true because you have to have the dialogue on what you're reading or they don't retain. And, you know, it's just having questions. What, what do you remember about this? Um, how does this relate to your everyday life? Get them to um, think about it and have discussion on it. And then they take that and remember it in their daily life. Otherwise, I can't imagine how they remember a story that we've just spent 20 minutes reading if we don't talk about it. Exactly. So from your research, can you give some strategies that you've incorporated into your game to help students and adults with our mindset? Because I know that I can get thrown off for my whole day and knowing some strategies on being able to put myself back on track are so important and students as well. So from a, a point of view, how would you recommend um, what strategies for us to keep our mindset on track? Yeah, I mean, that's such a great question, Andrea. And so perhaps, you know, that is why really I made this into the form of a game using the mindset of play, right? The spirit of learning through play. And really, I would say if we're having an off day or busy things around that, one of the biggest thing is that we need to take the time to provide a safe and brave space right, where uh, it invites mutual respect, trust building, that's incredibly important, um, so then we can have understanding. So in terms of the embedded strategies that I have in this car that I've done is really, it's, it's a game. So mindset of playful learning, and it focuses on bringing people together through commonalities, right? Um, and to really foster that sense of belonging first before you really even get down to like the nitty gritty of things. Um, and another thing to mindset to think about is this difference between strength-based versus deficit-based mindset. A lot of the times as parents, we're short on time, you know, we want to help our children. So um, I've found myself getting into the lecturing mode all the time. Right. And so as teachers as well, I've, I've also found myself trying to assess, you know, where my students are at and what can be improved. Um, but really, at times, we tend to forget the incredible strength and resilience that our children have. And so the types of ways I phrase the questions, the prompts, the activities and the cards, it really comes from a way to elevate the strength and looking at the strength that our children already have 
and building on that instead of poking holes at them being, you know, kind of like, what is wrong with this picture? What's wrong with you? What's going on? You know, and so one strategy I use is through personal storytelling, we practice these SEL types of skills and making it super relevant for them. Um, another strategy is, of course, doing it anytime, anywhere. Um, I believe, you know, we know that SEL does not exist only in schools. In fact, it should be ecologically holistic, right? Whether it's at home, going to school, at school. And, and so when we're busy, the last thing we want to do is to read a long manual, <laughs> you know, or figure out how to do something. So the cards or any activities we design should be sort of easy to digest, um, manageable, right? So that you know exactly where you're getting yourself into. Um, in the case of cards, the, the second you pick up a card um, and that you don't have to come up with questions and activities, it's there. And another thing, for example, in your 52 Essential Relationships decks, I do have sets of cards that, um, that players can go to straight. I call it when they're short on cues right? How do we get back onto the same page? Or when they're short on time, what can we do to get to a point of understanding and what we need from each other? Um, and each of the cards are actually mindfulness activities. And so this is what I call sort of my way of making self-care time public, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it just takes two minutes to, to just reset and use it at the same time as a way to role model as a way to role model for children or spouse or coworker. So these are some of the strategies. Well, incredible because with each of the cards, you learn a skill that develops confidence and that confidence makes you feel competent and you keep going. So I can see how these skills progress through school and into the workplace, no matter what we're struggling on, we want to get back to, I'm feeling good about myself and what I'm doing and be able to get back on course. Yeah, yeah, you know, just to add to that, it, what's the funny thing was that um, some of the cards are actually job interview questions in disguise. <laughs> and so when I had done an exercise with families, um, the kids are loving it because it's, it's a gamified way of talking about yourself, your identity, um, what's important to you. But the parents are like, wait a minute, this this question sort of looks familiar and it reminds me of, right? So it's the types of questions that you want to ask and reflect on for life. Well, bringing me to a post that, that I did on Instagram on cognitive biases. I put on there, there's almost 200 known cognitive biases and distortions that cause us to think and act irrationally. So can you explain what cognitive biases are and what we can do about them so they don't impact us, our decision-making in life? Sure, sure. So I would say um, cognitive bias is almost like a catch-all term that refers to when our judgment and the way we make our decisions deviate from what's really rational and objective. Um, so a modern day example, um, just I could think of as FOMO, so fear of missing out, right? Um, it happens when our friends and people we know are doing something and we start to question ourselves and we're like, we want to do that too. It must be good because other people are doing it, right? <laughs> and and so this, this kind of feeds into, again, the myth we had talked about, interestingly. And 
um, what's happening is that we're incredibly networked social animals. Um, we rely on others that we trust for social recommendations, for information, and that in turn influences how we think, our own mental models. And this is actually incredibly powerful because it's how we transmit information, how we transmit wisdom across generations. But as you mentioned, right, on the flip side, it's precisely how cognitive biases perpetuate and, you know, how fake news, for example, and rumors spread. And what makes it really persistent and damaging is, is yet another cognitive bias, which is called confirmation bias. So it, it means that we have a tendency to, we like to be right. We, we tend to look for information and evidence that affirms our belief system. And if there are contradictory evidence presented, we tend to ignore it. So it's like the bias on bias, which makes it so much harder. And so going back to your question, well, what can we do, right, to, to not get negatively swayed by these in our decision-making process is that we need to first be open to the fact that our thought process could be flawed and practice, I would say, the skills of perspective taking to really deeply listen and understand what the other person or an information source is saying. And one thing, one particular type of biases that really is near and dear to me um, is implicit bias. And so I have this on my card and it's, I think this day and age is, is, is really important important in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion. And that's why I have it as an additional competency on top of Castles 5. Um, and really, I think in that case, it's less about memorizing the definitions of these tons of biases, but it's more about having the humility to examine deeply into, into our own, just even one type of thinking model. Um, so for example, for me, how I improve myself is that um, for these diversity, equity, inclusion types of issues, I would talk different sets of perspectives. And I ended up interviewing researchers, practitioners who are very much in that types of work um, on topics. And it was on, on topics such as race and privilege, learning differences, gender identity and expression. Um, and this resource is free on my website. So definitely, I would say keep an open mind and be aware of how you're thinking. So the metacognition part. And we only need to focus on one thing, not all 200. <laughs> I like that idea. And when I first began studying all this with a neuroscience researcher, it was a little overwhelming, but there was one brain fact that stuck to me, and it was with our working memory, the fact that our conscious mind can only hold seven to 10 words. What does this mean for students in learning with this in mind? Like, how would you recommend students study for their test if they have to memorize 30 words or more? And what would you say would be the best memorization strategies with this in mind? Yeah, yeah. So one thing I guess in the spirit of growth mindset that I like to point out is that um, our memory consists of uh, a number of dynamic systems and subsystems. Uh, so we, you mentioned working memory is one type, but we also have long-term memory. Within that, there's the semantic memories, which are long-term sort of facts and vocabularies that we memorize and know, um, or episodic memories like 
has to do with life events. And there's also the sort of short-term memory if we separate it into a different bucket than working memory. Um, but ultimately, so some real practical examples, right, it, when studying, um, so for example, you said spelling tests, right? And, and I do this as a parent all the time with my kids too, is uh, think about cognitive scientists have found that spacing really helps to retain information. Um, a lot of the times, you know, we're short on time, we tend to cram, cram the information, and perhaps it, it might work the day after on your test, but in the long run, you're not going to be able to remember that. So I would recommend first space it out in terms of um, your study times, your study sessions, uh, more smaller sessions than one long session. Uh, vary in terms of how you study, right? Switch it up. If it's a vocabulary, you can first just write it down, you know, um, and then you can put it in a sentence. I play charades with my kids, you know, whenever it's a, it's a say a noun, I would act it out, right? Um, so vary it that studies have found that retains. Um, and then also testing yourself and teaching it to others help you um, to more effectively recall or retrieve this piece of memory, recalling something. So you're, every time you recall, you're strengthening the neuronal connections of that memory. Um, and I would say also mnemonics, right? Associating it with something that you already know. Um, so working memory, you're right, is, um, you know, we've done research on that. It is very, um, very much a, almost like a mental sticky note that helps you keep track of really, really short-term memories, uh, information that you can manipulate, like long addition problems. But your goal is really to figure out how to successfully encode it and store it into um, you know long-term memory so that you can have it you're able to apply it to different contexts um, and going back into mindset I would say growth mindset really helps right it's about not viewing these exercises as so much obstacles um, but rather as opportunities to growth so how do we see mistakes right um, it's growth rather than it's saying I'm not smart um, and, and so think about that. And last way, lastly, I know you had a podcast and you mentioned amygdala hijack, right? Yeah. That's another important thing, right? So while you have memorized it, how are you going to retrieve this information and recall it? So that's when stress, your emotions really play a role, even sleep. Um, so definitely think about those three elements in terms of um, successfully acing a spelling test. What's your vision for where these cards are going to go um, moving forward? Yeah, so I would say, um, so I've found it, it's, it's now in a lot of schools as well as community organizations. I think my mission is really to make it accessible and adaptable for everyone. Um, and, and I'm bringing it into higher education as well. But in terms of words of sort of things I've learned, right? Um, I guess I, I just want to leave um, everyone the fact that, you know, it's okay to not know everything. And we, we it's impossible to know everything, right? And that is the beauty of learning together. So sort of going back to this big kid, little kid, you know, adult child development together being on this learning journey. 
And really it's again, having that humility to say, I don't know to yourself, to your child. And then having the genuine curiosity to say, let's find out or tell me more. So that's, that's something that I've learned. Oh, that's powerful, Jenny. And I love your cards. I love what you've created here. I just want to thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed getting to know you and your work and incorporating this into our family. I'm looking forward to hearing what happens at the Castle Exchange, how that goes for you in October, and continuing to support and share your work. Thank you so much for your time and knowledge today. Thank you, Andrea. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 